Well, like has already been mentioned a couple of times, last week uh, we started our fall series as a church called Ten. You can see from the banners here, we are studying the Ten Commandments as a church. And if you missed last week, I encourage you to go online or go back to the uh, Welcome Center and get a message because Jeff did a great job not only introducing us to the first command, but uh, really he introduced us to the whole purpose of why we're doing this series. And more importantly, why did God give us the Ten Commandments to begin with, and we are going to say something quite often throughout this series. We really hope you hear the heart behind God's giving of these Ten Commandments. And if you're following on your notes, here's what we want to remember. God's boundary lines are a gift. God's boundary lines, the Ten Commandments, are a gift. And honoring them leads to freedom. Honoring them leads to freedom. Or the way I like to think about it is, I've come to the conclusion in my life, I don't know if you have, that God wants the best possible life for me. Have you made that conclusion for yourself? Well, if that's the case, then I trust that these boundary lines that he's given us are actually a way for me to have the best possible life. And when I obey them with the right intentions, with the right heart, that's exactly what I'm going to have. I think about it this way. As a parent, uh, all of us as parents, if you're a parent, we have boundary lines for our children, don't we? We have to give them to them. For example, one obvious one is we tell all of our kids, look both ways before you cross the street. I mean, that's... That's right up there, you know, one of the first things we teach our kids when they're old enough to, to walk. And uh, a couple months ago, our son, he goes over across the street, he plays with a neighbor, and I was looking out the window, and he did not look both ways before he crossed the street. That's serious. And so his mother and I uh, sat him down and said, listen, we're not going to be able to let you just do that anymore without us watching unless we can trust that you're going to look both ways across the street. And uh, we got to the heart of the matter. You know, he's like, I know, I know I'm supposed to do it. But then we asked him, why have we made this a rule? And he understood. He understood the heart behind it, right? He said, because you don't want me to get hit by a car because you love me. And we said, that's exactly right. And I think in the same way, God has given us these boundaries, not to stifle our freedom, but so that we can experience the best life possible. And this week, we come to commandment number two. And it's going to look at first glance that this is a lot like the first commandment we looked at last week, but really, there is some significant differences. You see, the first commandment forbids us from worshiping false gods. That's what it was all about. Don't worship another God. But this commandment is all about worshiping the right God falsely. Don't worship the right God falsely. Uh, there's a subtle difference there. Or if you're falling on your notes, here's how I might say it. Number one is about worship the right God. <laughs> worship the Lord your God. Number two says worship that God the right way. Worship the right God the right way. A good illustration, by the way, of the difference between this, you can see this later on in scriptures in the book of 2 Kings. You know, Kings is recording all the kings in Israel's history, and there was a, a king named Jehu who was actually described as a good king. And the reason he was a good king is because he got rid of idol worship in Israel. He killed Queen Jezebel, if you remember, uh, which caused Israel to, you know, really worship the god Baal. This was a, a god that the Israelites struggled with uh, throughout uh, their history. He killed her. He got rid of all the idols. However, in 2 Kings 29, it says this about King Jehu. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. Now you're wondering, well, how did he get rid of all the idols if they still have these golden calves in Bethel and Dan? And the answer to that is those weren't different gods. 
Those were representations of the God of Israel. So while Jehu was fulfilling the first command, he was breaking the second command. They had made idols, images of the God of Israel, and they had worshipped them. That's kind of the difference between where we're going, so we're going to get more into that. If you would, I invite you to take your Bible, just like we do every week. We want to be first-handers here in God's Word. Take your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4. If you're still getting used to where things are in your Bible, just remember Exodus is like the second book in the Bible, so you get the Genesis is the first, Exodus is number two. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we always provide Bibles in the seat in front of you there, and you can find this on page number 52. I am going to break this morning into three parts. First, I'm going to help, hopefully, us understand the heart of the second commandment a little more. Secondly, I want to talk about how relevant this command still is for us today. I got to tell you, I was rocked this week in my own life, and I have a feeling uh, many of you might have the same experience as we kind of see some of the dangers that are still relevant for us today, and then I want to talk about how we can live this commandment out in our daily lives. Does that sound like a good plan? I don't want to go anywhere in God's Word before I invite the Lord to go before me, so can we just turn our attention to Him for a moment and invite Him into this, Lord? We thank you for these Ten Commandments. And we want to trust that you want the best possible life for us, and that's why you've given us them. We pray this morning as we look at number two that you would help us to see the heart behind this commandment and how by obeying it we truly can live lives of greater freedom. Go before us now, open minds, hearts, eyes to see you for who you are. May it be so for Jesus' sake and for his name. Amen. Well, let's read the second commandment out loud together on our notes. Would you do that with me? It says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Other translations you may be using, instead of the word idol, might have image or carved image. But listen, they all mean the same thing. And this command is pretty clear, isn't it? If you're following on your notes, number two is do not make or worship an idol. Do not make or worship an idol. Now, just in case we're not sure what God meant by an idol, I love how he describes it. It's anything on the earth, in the water, or under the earth. In other words, it's everything that is created. The the message of this is don't make the creator set apart from creation into something created. Don't worship something created. In this world. Now, that does not mean that the Israelites were forbidden from making things. They weren't even forbidden from making images of things. I mean, later you, you see in Exodus, they are told how to make the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, right? That's a, that's a thing not in the earth. It's above, it's in the heavens. So, I guess I actually would say this. When we are creating things as human beings, isn't that us displaying the image of God at its fullest? I mean, God is the creator, and we, he has designed us in his image, so he tell, we, we create, we imagine. It's an amazing thing we can do as human beings. However, what this command is saying is don't create things and then worship them. Don't turn a created thing into an object of worship. And I imagine when we read this commandment today, we sit here this morning in this series of the Ten Commandments and go, I got this one covered. I'll see you next week. Because when we think of an idol, what do we think of? 
I mean, the only place really you can see idols in the way we think of it in the Old Testament, you know, is by going to a museum or by maybe going to visit a missionary in a far field and you still see these idols. I mean, isn't it true? This is what we think of. We think that's an idol. And that's true. I mean, that's an actual idol that people worshipped. I want to show you a couple other. Here is the idol Baal. This is the one that the Israelites, uh, you know, spent so much of their history uh, prostrating themselves to. And another one, if you've ever read Scripture, that's an Asherah pole. This is another one that they kept falling into. I mean, isn't it true when we think of an idol, that's what we're thinking, right? Something made of stone, something made of gold that the Israelites fell down to worship. But if that's all an idol is, then we might as well move on to number three. But if you've learned anything about God's law, you know that his law aren't just physical laws, they're spiritual laws as well. In other words, they're laws for our heart. They are laws for our heart. In fact, I think the reason... the God makes it so clear of what an idol is. He doesn't just say it's something you make. I mean, that's something we make, and we bow down and worship it, but it's something we worship. An idol can be anything we worship. If you're on your notes, an idol is anything I worship, besides or before God. Besides or before God. That's a reference to the first commandment there. Now, we've talked a lot about worship in our church. Worship simply means the thing I place supreme value on. Say that again. Worshiping something is the thing I place supreme value in. It's like the top of my list. It's the thing I'm spending my energy and my time, my money on. I mean, it's the the thing I'm going all in, right? It's what I adore. It's what I devote myself to. And so let me just give a few examples of what I think are some idols in our culture today. Let me show a couple pictures of these. That's the most obvious one. I mean, money we need to survive. However, how easily can money become the thing that we devote our lives to how about this one that's what i call the proverbial corner office right there isn't that nice status what's the corner office about it's all about status right it's that it's that man i've reached the top and many of us spend our lives thinking that's the thing that's going to fulfill me how about this one Ooh, getting dangerous here kids are a great thing they are a gift from God. But how often can we turn our children into the object of our worship? How about this? <laughs> Body image. We worship how we look here in the United States in the 21st century. And if we're not careful, we can devote our whole lives to that. Last but not least, <laughs> fame. Uh, we want to be known. I want that 15 minutes. I mean, we can devote our lives to pursuing those things. Listen, an idol is anything that I worship, right? Anything I place above the Lord. Now, I have to say something really important. That sounds a lot like the first commandment. It sounds a lot like the first commandment, but the difference is, did you know we can also make the Lord an idol if we're not careful? I'm going to talk a lot more about that later in the message, but we can turn God into an idol. We're going to see how that happens, and that's the part that really rocked my world this week. But before we do that, that leads to this question. Why does God not want us to worship him the wrong way or worship a created thing in the wrong way? Notice what the rest of verse 5 says, if you have your Bible open. It says, for I, the Lord your God, am a what? Jealous God. If you're following God forbids idolatry, 
because he is jealous for us. What do you feel when you hear that? That word jealousy, man, that doesn't get a lot of positive publicity these days, does it? When people talk about being jealous, they generally mean, you know, envious of what someone else has or wanting, desiring something that doesn't belong to me. However, let me ask you a question. Is there ever a time in our lives as well for a kind of godly jealousy? For example, are there things that do belong to you? Are there things that do belong to you that you need to guard and hold against? Let me just give you an absurd example. Imagine tomorrow my wife is walking, walking by our kitchen counter and she sees my wallet lying out there and she's looking at the pictures in my wallet and there's a picture of her, there's a picture of our kids and there's a picture of another woman. Do you think my wife would have the right to be repulsed by that image? Do you think she'd have the right to take that picture and tear it up into a thousand pieces and confront me that she has the right to be angry and hurt and jealous for me? She's my wife. She has that right. She has that right. And you know what? She should insist on it. She should insist on that right because I stood before God and I stood before her and I made a vow before her that I am a one-woman man. I believe when we get to the heart of this second commandment, here is what the Lord is saying. I am your God. I am your God. I saved you. I bought you at a terrible price. On Calvary, I sent my son so that I could enter into a covenant relationship with you. So don't put another picture in your wallet. That place belongs to me and me alone. Godly jealousy is a jealousy that guards our rightful possession. As one commentator explains, godly jealousy is not the insecure, insane, and possessive human jealousy that we often interpret this word to mean, Rather, it is an intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love, like a mother's jealous protection of her children, or a father's jealous guarding of his home. A better word maybe for us today would be zealous. That's the heart behind that, right? God is zealous. He's zealous for his name, and he's zealous for our love for him. If that's what that means, then God has to be jealous. He has to be. He loves us too much not to be. And so listen, when we have an image in our wallet, so to speak, that's not God. He's going to do everything in his power to confront us about that. He's going to do everything in his power to show us that's not how this covenant relationship was ever supposed to work. Indeed, so jealous is he. If you're falling on your notes, this command ends with a warning and promise. It ends with a warning and promise. First, the warning. Look at the rest of verse 5. I'll, I'll start from the beginning. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, if you didn't like the word jealous, you're certainly not going to like that, are you? Is that fair? I mean, what is going on here? Is it okay for God to punish children for the sins of his or her parents? Well, those are great questions. Let me just mention a couple of things here. First of all, that actually does not mean that God is going to punish children for the sin of their parents or grandchildren. The emphasis on Scripture is always on personal responsibility. In fact, read Deuteronomy 24, uh, I think 16 out loud with me on, your, on the screen here. 
Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Now here's the key. Each will die for their own sin. God never condemns the innocent, only the guilty. So what is going on here? What is this all about? Well, I want you to notice something extremely important that often gets overlooked when people read this verse. What does the very end of this verse say? He will punish three or four generations of what? Those who... So listen. So often I have read that in the past and thought, well, the parents are guilty, but the children are innocent. But what that suggests is these children hate God just as much as the parents did in their own choice. In their own choice. You and you alone are responsible for how you view the Lord. They hated him. Now let me just dig a little deeper here, though. There is some significant truth going on behind this, isn't there? Let me ask you, who in the human realm has the most significant impact on what their children are going to think and believe about God in this life? Their parents. Hands down, period, right? So listen, if I am not making the Lord my primary focus in life, if I'm devoting myself to something besides him, my kids are going to see that. They're going to notice that. If I talk about the Lord in the wrong way, if I'm living for something besides the Lord, I'm going to pass that on. I think about some of my friends who grew up in an alcoholic home. Every single one of them would tell you, and they've told me this, whether or not it's alcohol they struggle with, that has been passed on into their lives still today. They're trying to break free from things and that thing by God's grace, but you can't tell me that they don't still feel the effects of that. And so the heart behind this warning is the same thing. Parents, grandparents, what kind of legacy are we leaving for our kids when it comes to how they're going to view the Lord? I'm grateful for this warning now. I used to scoff at it, but now I think, wow, God really wants the best for And he's telling me, listen, if you don't make me the priority, your kids probably won't either. But if you do make me the priority, look at the promise he gives us in the last verse of this commandment. It says, read it out loud on your notes with me from verse 6 there. It says, but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. That's the kind of legacy God wants us to leave. Yeah? I mean, when we get this right, while that warning in that previous verse may seem discouraging, especially for those of us who grew up in a home where, quite honestly, our parents did hate God. But the promise here is you can start a new legacy today. And the blessing is a thousand times greater, it says, than the potential for curse. So, parents, grandparents, how are we doing on this? Are we leaving the kind of legacy we want for our kids? Are we blessing our kids, uh, our, our kids by this? Now, I love it. I know so many of you in this room have made a decision and made a stand, and you know exactly what God is talking about right here. You did not grow up a home where you had this. But the greatness of our God is that he can start today in your family. He can start today when you put your foot in the sand and say, this is what we're going to live for. Think about Abraham. He grew up in the worst of idolatrous families, and yet God took him and established a whole generation. The seed Jesus came through, he can do the same in our lives. Amen? This is a warning, but it's also an incredible, incredible promise, and it will make the difference in the world for us when we keep it. Well, that's the second commandment. That's the second commandment. It's amazing to me. If you were to keep reading Exodus after chapter 20, what happens? 
Look at the very end of, uh, of Exodus 20. Keep your Bible open. Notice, after the Ten Commandments, what does God do? He re-gives the first and second commandment. He's like, listen, let me just remind you, no other gods and no idols. That's how important it is. I've heard someone say, if you get these first two wrong, it doesn't matter what you do with the rest of them, right? So God's like, listen, here's the key. No other gods and no worshiping of idols. And yet, you start reading through Exodus, what happens? You get to chapter 24. The people are pumped. They're on fire. God is going to ratify the covenant with them. And so he says his part, and the people of Israel proclaim, let me say it word for word, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And that covenant is ratified. Blood is sprinkled on the people and on the uh, altar of the Lord. And then Moses is like, okay, I'm going to be gone for 40 days to receive this law straight from God's hand on the stone tablets. I'll be back. He goes up to Mount Sinai and that's a long time. 40 days. Aaron, we need something to worship. Aaron says, oh, well, I'll collect all your gold and I will form this image of a golden bull, and we use that to worship. Fourteen chapters later, 40 days after they said, we will do everything the Lord has said. Now, I want to clear something up. I think there's two ways to view that. Is the golden bull another god, the breaking of the first commandment, or is this the breaking of the second? And most would agree it's the breaking of the second. What they were looking for was a something to visualize, to worship the God who had just delivered them out of Egypt and who had appeared on Mount Sinai. And so Aaron picks this image of a bull. Now, that's unbelievable to me that this happened, isn't it to you? These foolish Israelites, how could they fall into this kind of debacle? Well, I can just as easily. I can just as easily fall into the same trap. John Calvin once said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. I never knew what that meant until I studied it this week, and it is so true. Idolatry is just as dangerous for us today as it was for them. In fact, here's the part that really scared me. I want to talk about four dangers of idolatry that are still present today in our lives. First of all, idolatry, number one, reduces the Lord to less than he is. Idolatry at its heart reduces the Lord to less than he is. Ultimately, like we've said, an idol is turning the creator into something created, correct? Paul wrote about it this way in Romans 1.25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. This is the problem. Creating an image of a false god, no matter what image we create. As one scholar wrote, an idol makes the infinite God finite, the invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, and the spiritual God material. In short, it reduces God to something less than he is. Now, let's take the example of the golden bull. I actually got to give the Israelites credit for that one. The bull was the paradigm of power at that time. And so they decided, well, surely God would be honored if we represented him as the paradigm of power. I mean, they had just witnessed some incredible things, hadn't they? The ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. They had been provided water and manna and quail in the desert. They had just experienced this incredible moment when God's glory ascends on Mount Sinai. Surely he'll be delighted that we represent him in the image of a bull. Is God delighted by that? He is so offended by that, 
It takes Moses' impassioned cry for mercy to stop him from wiping out the people of Israel. Does that bother you about God, that he would do that? Friends, we will probably not make literal idols today out of gold, out of stone, but I just got to say, we do the same thing to God every time we reduce him to something less than he really is. For example, how do you like to think of Jesus? The popular image of Jesus today is that he's meek, he's mild, he's gentle, he's always quick to forgive. Now let me ask you a trick question. Is that true about Jesus? All of that is true about Jesus. But let me ask you another question. Is that all that is true about Jesus? When I read the Jesus of the Gospels, I see this incredible balance of purity, yes, and grace, of anger, righteous anger, but compassion. We learn in our series in John that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Some of us like the grace. And that's what we focus on. Some of us like the truth, and that's what we focus on. But when we focus on either or, we've reduced God to something less than he really is. And what is that? That's making him an idol. I'm reading 1 John right now. I'm studying it, actually, with, uh, for my class that I'm in. And 1 John has just some of the most incredible statements about who God is, right? All of us know in 1 John it says, God is love. Is that true about God? Yes. You know what it also says? God is light. And by that, John is bringing out a different side of God. He is holy. He's completely separate. He's transcendent. He cannot be in the presence of darkness. He is love, but he is light. 100% both. Friends, idolatry robs God of who he really is. You know what it is? It's attempting to whittle him down so that I'm more comfortable with him. But that's what's scary, because by the time I've finished reshaping God, you know what I've shaped him into? Me. I've shaped him into the God that I want, not the God that he is. I'll give you an example. A, a pastor wrote a story that I was reading this week, and he was saying he was on an airplane. And why these things always happen on airplanes with pastors, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't have an airplane story yet, so I must be failing in the pastor department or something. But he's talking to this girl he just happened to be sitting next to, and she sees him reading the Bible, and she goes, well, I'm, I'm a Christian as well. And they start talking about their faith, and then she tar- starts talking to him about her lifestyle and how she's into partying, sleeping around with lots of men, you know, drugs, alcohol, the whole thing. And so the pastor just was like, I have just got to ask you, you know, in all the grace that he could, I mean, how do you reconcile living that kind of life with what you're saying you believe? And I want you to listen to her response. Without giving a second thought, she responded this way. Well, my God is the grandfatherly type who loves me and takes care of me and tells me I'm okay. He knows that boys will be boys and girls will be girls. He doesn't care much what I do. What is that? Friends, it's easy to look at her and go, oh, I can't believe she'd do that. But how many times do all of us say, I like to think of God as, that might happen every day. I think of God in a different way in every day, Right? And what are we doing there? We're remaking God into the image we want him to be. And that's idolatry. You know why I do it? 
You know why I do this? Because I do do this. I confess to you. Without even realizing it sometimes, I do this. Because it's so much easier for me to remake God into my image than it is to be remade into his. Which is what he calls us as to be as Christians. So much easier to say, I'll take this part of you, God, but I don't like the other part of you. Grace. Yeah, truth. Love. Light. But he's all of it. And when we reduce him down to anything less, we no longer have God. We no longer have God. And that leads to the second danger of idolatry. This is directly related to that first one. Not only does idolatry reduce the Lord to less than he is, but more dangerous still, idolatry is an attempt to control the Lord. I mean, think about it. Take the next step. When I reduce him, what am I really trying to do? I'm making him into a God that I can handle so then I can control. Listen to what Joy Davidman wrote about this. She was married to C.S. Lewis here. This is going to be a deep quote, so put your thinking cap on here for a second. The essence of idolatry is its attempt to control and enslave the deity. If the idol has power over man, so has man power over the idol. He can bribe it. He can drive a bargain with it. By certain rituals and sacrifices, he can compel it to grant his wishes, or so at least the idolater thinks. For an idol is not just an image of one shape or another meant to represent a deity. An idol is a material object by the proper manipulation of which a man may get what he wants out of life. Did you catch that? I mean, how does that play itself out in our lives? Well, have you ever thought to yourself, if I do this thing, then God will do this thing? Who of us haven't done that? I mean, let's be honest. If I just touch the minister, I'll be healed. If I pray this prayer, then I'm going to be rich. God will bless me. If I raise my children the right way, then God is obligated to fulfill his commitment to that. Or, come on, we've all said this one. God, if you get me out of this mess, I promise. What is that? It's controlling God. I remember several years ago now, Bruce Wilkerson wrote a book called The Prayer of Jabez, and it's a great book. I have nothing against the book. If you read the book in its context, it's got a wonderful message to it. However, what happened is that some people took that book and said, well, if I just pray the prayer of Jabez over and over again, God is going to make me rich. What is that? It's reshaping God into who I want him to be, trying to manipulate him, trying to control him, but God will not be captured, assigned, or managed by anyone. God wants us to trust and obey him, not use him, not use him. The third danger of idolatry we need to be aware of today is that it makes a means the ends. It makes the means the ends. Let me explain. Think back to the golden bowl for me for a minute. What was the end of the golden bowl? And it's, I mean, just let's pretend they were really pure at heart when they decided to make that. What was the end of that? What did they want that to be? They wanted to worship God with the golden bull, right? However, what happened? The golden bull itself became the object of worship. And this happens over and over again in Israel's history. When the people are struck by a venomous snake, you know, Moses uh, sculptures the bronze snake that he holds up on a stick, and if they look at the stick, they'll be healed. But what happened to the bronze snake? 
It becomes an object of worship. The means of healing became the ends in itself. Or think about the golden ephod that uh, Gideon made. He made this as like a celebration of what God had done. However, we read in Judges that Israel began to prostrate themselves at the ephod and worship it. Something that was originally intended to reveal God's glory became the object of glory instead. Does this ever happen in our world today? Oh, come on. I mean, think about sex for a second. Have we made the means the end? I mean, when God gave the gift of sex, he gave it for two things, right? For a husband and wife to enjoy, and also so they could be fruitful and multiply. That was the ends, right? But what has become? It's become an object of worship. I mean, you can't tell me it hasn't. It's the ends in itself now for so many people. Man, the people in the world don't just get it. This never happens in the church, though, right? Can we make the means the end sometimes? Think about worship. Can a building become the ends instead of the means? What is the means of a building? It's a place for God's people to gather on a Sunday morning and throughout the week to do what? What's the end of it? To worship God. To glorify God. I mean, that's it. But can that ever get reversed if we're not careful? Sure can. Or let me get on some really touchy subjects right now. What about an organ versus a praise band? (sighs) I love both. And what is the purpose of both? It's to bring glory to God. Right? It's to lead God's people in singing to bring Him glory. However, can we ever lose sight of that and turn the style of worship into the thing we worship? Can you see, God, can you see how subtle and dangerous idolatry really can be? Can you see it while I was rocked this week studying this stuff? Last but not least, the fourth danger of idolatry is it will leave us empty and unsatisfied. It will leave us empty and unsatisfied. Any idol, including whatever image we create of God in our own mind, is only going to leave us empty in the end. I'm curious, how many of you have ever had the opportunity to visit Universal Studios or something kind of like that? Anybody? Just raise your hand. So when you go visit one of these places, you get on this tram or bus or something and they take you around and you get to go visit uh, the, the lots of all these TV shows you'd recognize or movies that you, you know, grew up watching and it's a pretty cool experience. I mean, you're driving right down Mayberry Lane and you see all these uh, things like, oh, that's the general store, oh, that's the police station, all, all that cool stuff. However, once the train leaves the street and you take a corner, you look back and what do you see from Mayberry Lane? It's just a bunch of cardboard erected walls there's no substance behind any of those buildings they've pulled a fast one on us did you know that (laughs) and in the same way the idols of this world pull a fast one on us they offer so much promise they offer so much fulfillment on the outside they look so good and yet when you get to the see them for what they really are They're just empty illusions. They're just empty illusions. Can we just turn this around and think about this from the positive perspective? We've been arguing that God gave us these commandments. Why? Because he wants the best for us. So here's my question. Why would he forbid us worshiping anything other than him the right way 
Is it perhaps because he knows that worshiping him the right way is the only thing that will truly fulfill us? Is that really God's heart behind this commandment? He simply knows, look, no matter what the world promises you, no matter how much money you make, no matter how many relationships you have, no matter how good you may look, all of those things are an illusion and will ultimately leave you empty. Here, in my opinion, is the plea from God's heart to his people. I know that. Do you trust that I know that? Do you trust that I know what's best for you and pursuing those things are only going to leave you empty in the end? They're a mirage. Jesus said as much to the woman at the well in John 4. He says, if you drink this water, you're going to be thirsty again. How true is that? When we come to the well of success, of fame, of money again and again, but it never quite satisfies. I've always got to have more. We come every day, we come every day, he says, but I've got a promise of something better that will satisfy. In the very same conversation with that woman, Jesus would say these words. Can we read them out loud from John 4.14 on our notes? He says, Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There is a well available. It's not a mirage. It's not an image. It's the real thing, and you can have it freely. It's me. It's me. Come to me, and you will be satisfied. Friends, I like to think of the Ten Commandments, like, let's think about these things. How would you write that positively? And here's what I wrote. You can have me as I really am. You can have me as I really am, not some substitute that will leave you empty. And because that's what God wants for us, it's exactly what he gives us. If you're falling on your notes, only the Lord can satisfy our longing. He knows that. He knows that. And most amazing of all, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he gives us, he offers it freely. He offers us it freely. That's the heart behind the second commandment, in my opinion. So the question as we close is, how do we live this out today? And I really only have two quick things to mention. Number one, make a complete break from every, every idol you may have. I mean, that's the command, right? Make a complete break from every idol you may have. Have I placed, ask God in a time of prayer, God, search my heart. Have I placed something created, even if it's a creation of my own imagination of who you are above you? If so, make a break from it. Do what Jehu did. Destroy it, but destroy all of them. Destroy all of them. The second commandment says you will be free when you make a break from anything that substitutes for God. Second, number two, Worship the Lord rightly and wholeheartedly. That's what this message really comes down to. How do we worship the Lord the right way? And the answer is very simple. Rather than reducing him down to my image, we let him remake us into his image. Rather than reducing him to what I want him to be, we let him be who he already is. And we're okay with it. It may be scary, there may be times of mystery and misunderstanding. I mean, how can we comprehend this God, friends? I've always said that. But why would I want 
to worship a God that I can fully comprehend. There's not enough in this little skull that would deserve that. Because of who God is, we should also worship him wholeheartedly. That means just giving our whole lives to him. Just like my wife, God deserves my full commitment to him. He is jealous for our covenant relationship. He spilt his blood in order that he might do that. In the same conversation Jesus had with the woman in the well, he tells us that true worshipers worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And for me, that's the heart of this message this morning. I mean, how do we worship the Lord rightly and wholeheartedly? We worship him in spirit and truth. By spirit, it means not just going through rituals, not just showing up to church every week, because that's what I do. It means giving him my whole heart. Giving him it all. He gets the only picture in my wallet. And worshiping in truth means we worship him intelligently. He is mysterious. He's the combination of grace and truth. He's light. He's love. He's transcendent. He's imminent. He's more than this little mind can ever imagine. He is the Lord God Almighty. And if you're falling on your notes, the question for us this morning is, will I worship the right God the way he deserves? The way he deserves. As Chuck already mentioned, we are going to have an opportunity to do that very thing right now. And while singing isn't the only way that we worship God rightly, it certainly is an opportunity for us to worship him in spirit and truth, isn't it? We proclaim words together that are from Scripture, that are true about who God is, and hopefully we do that from a wholehearted spirit. I'm not just mindlessly singing words. I'm singing them from a heart that cries out, you are God alone, and you deserve everything I'm giving to you right now. So as we enter into this time together this morning, let's see the heart behind this commandment once again. God has given us this because he knows this is where we find fulfillment. This is where we find true freedom. Will you give your heart to him and worship this morning?